0: To GNT, the podcast from political blog The Groucho Tendency. Hello and welcome to GNT, the Politics Podcast from the Groucho Tendency. It's the day before Super Tuesday, so anything we say in this podcast may will probably prove to be spectacularly wrong. We will all make some predictions, but I'll tell you one man who is never wrong. He is on the nose every single time. He is the slightly horse-throated, horse-voiced Nostradamus from South West London. The soothsayer of Twickenham is, of course, Liam Kay. Pleased to meet you again. (laughs) (laughs) So Liam's unfortunately come down, not with the coronavirus, but with a cold from singing in which Blues Kitchen was it he went to?
1: In Camden, in Camden. Yes. In Camden, so Liam, Liam's voice is a little bit
0: hoarse. He has rather bravely volunteered to come out on this slightly cold uh, Monday night on the 2nd of March. So we're yeah. almost into spring, we're not quite there yet. So you're going to hear me talking for a good chunk of this podcast and Liam is going to signal when he has something to say. So <laughs> he's nodding, he's he's indicating a sentence, how to to say. So we're going to spend a good chunk of this one looking outside of the UK, or indeed issues that connect us to other shores. So, and there is really nothing at the moment that is on people's minds more, it's fair to say, than the prospect of a global pandemic from coronavirus. And as the time we record this, the number of cases in the UK, reported cases in the UK, stands at just under 40. Uh, there haven't been any reported fatalities in this country yet one British person has died on a cruise ship that was quarantined over in the far east uh, hot spots for the country, for countries for the disease obviously China, Italy um, some cases in the UAE
1: as well there's, there's four that are specifically category one on the foreign office um, South Korea, China, Northern Italy and Iran And I believe my favourite fact about the
0: coronavirus is that Iran's deputy health minister, Iran's vice president, sorry, has contracted coronavirus as well. Now, the 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 fatality of the coronavirus is about two percent, but it has provoked, understandably, among the countries it's in, a considerable degree of nervousness. Uh, The day we record this, the reason we're bringing this up today is we're going to take a specific look, first of all, at the UK government's response. and this has really been the first time that Boris Johnson has broken cover on this event, isn't it? He's really kind of come out of the woodwork and um, finally called a meeting of Cobra, which is Cabinet Office briefing room A, which is the government's civil contingencies body. Um, why this matters is twofold. One, there is a question of I'm old enough to have lived through a couple of you know, health scares in this country. You know, uh, BSE just about remembered. Foot and mouth is another one, but this is this is a different sort of things. Um Liam was telling me over dinner beforehand that usually that you had swine flu when it when it happened, didn't you?
1: I did, yes. It was it was not very nice, to be honest. Uh it took about a month to get over that. Um a week of feeling very ill and then about three weeks of uh feeling a bit weak and tired in comparison to usual. So
0: so it's fair to say that if you have been to any of the hotspot countries that we've named and you are feeling a bit run down, you know, under, under the weather and presenting with flu symptoms, you know, the advice is to is to self-isolate. It is to keep yourself um, shielded from other people for 14 days, including, I believe, as we record this, um, the Channel 4 News presenter, John Snow, is in the middle of a 14-day period of self-isolation. And also Nick Robinson. And Nick Robinson as well, both of whom have been to Iran, although not admitting the parts where it was affected. So the effectiveness of the government's advice we don't really know yet There, what we have seen today is Boris Johnson going out into the media and laying the groundwork for a possible escalation of the number of cases um, because as, as yet there is no vaccine and there probably wouldn't be for a year or so yet, so this is really about managing the spread of the disease um, one of the things that I think that, let's, take, let's take it from a media management perspective first of all here, so the Prime Minister has done something he hasn't done we know it's serious because he sat down with Laura Kunzberg to do an interview this evening and he's been avoiding the BBC like the plague but this is clearly serious because he's broken cover in order to do that
1: yeah and you know at the end of the day it's a very different situation to your normal political goings on isn't it it's um, it's a public health emergency most likely coming around the corner Uh, it's important to get messages out to a make sure people stay calm and b that people are aware that things are probably going to get a lot worse before they get better
0: and the trouble is the government's really had difficulty i think managing two big um sort of national issues that aren't connected to politics first of all the floods that have been going on since christmas and a lot of people are wondering boris johnson has come in for a lot of christmas a lot not visiting the flood hit areas during the half um we found it over the weekend that if we should say congratulations to the prime minister he is engaged and has a baby on the way with his partner carrie simmons uh, in the early summer so we wish him the very best of luck with that and you know wish them both well and uh, the the baby to be but we haven't seen a lot of boris johnson this year and i wonder if this is going to be a pattern for his premiership that he'll only emerge when he needs really needs to to deal with the media or whether or not his you know his private life is kept, him understandably, occupied. You know, making sure Miss Simons and his, you know, his future happy nuptials are something
1: that he you knows he's, I spent some time on. I, I suppose, from a media sort of perspective, there is that kind of, I suppose, being the bearer of good news, and having other other members of your cabinet be the ones that deliver the more sort of serious uh, cases. Coronavirus being an exception to that. Yeah. But, you know, I I think they know that Boris is very much an um, election-winning machine. He's never lost one. Um, and I think he probably just wants to be sort of kept aloof from a lot of the day-to-day. Um, you know, plausible deniability, we'll call it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> plausible deniability is something that Boris Johnson... Has striven for but it has to be said there's there is nothing like the office of prime minister for conveying a sense of authority in a crisis i mean i don't doubt that the, the the various agencies in this country whether it's the environment Agency or public health england or department for health and social care or defra are well staffed and with very many competent officials but relying on the excuse of cabinet government at a time when you know we have seen considerable you know strife for this country in terms of the flooding and now we have a national pandemic. I mean, it feels, it just feel appropriate to have called Cobra today, you know, to get this out and done with. What sort of things are the government r- rumoured to be considering though? Because, you know, it has to be said that the message seems to be that things are going to get worse before they get
1: better. I'm, I mean, from what I understand, the government is considering a number of sort of solutions, some far more um, uh, sort of some far more sort of what you would consider to be the sort of tactics used in China, um, you know, essentially closing down cities, forcing people to be isolated if they get the illness. Um, I think I think you I think you will almost certainly see if there is particular if it is spreading in a little local area that that area will be quarantined and people will be restricted from going in and out. I think there's a chance that the police and the army may be called in to enforce quarantines. Um, It very much depends on what the pattern is, I think. Um, If you get a lot of individual cases all over the country, and it becomes difficult to do so, uh, to really enforce that sort of quarantine, I can't see the government actively quarantining an entire nation in in the same manner that China has effectively done. You know, there was, was it, you know, about 300-something million people who were restricted from travel in China. Amazing. And cases are coming down there. Um, again, it's... what Things that work in an authoritarian dictatorship may not be something that would, for instance, be able to be sort of brought in in a European country. If you look at how Italy has handled the crisis at the moment be very much trying to um focus on a few particular towns restricting uh public gatherings of over about like 5000 people um but you know there's some sense that Italy has been trying to actually try to keep things open a little bit to, yeah. to keep the tourism industry going um there's some rumors that more of the Serie A football will be allowed next weekend um Of which the last two weekends anywhere in the north of Italy has not played at home um, and other places that have had teams coming from northern Italy Um, so it very much depends on the approach but I would almost certainly expect that if you know a city like for example London was hit it would see that you know the football would be suspended theatres gigs things that things that where people are going to be gathering and uh, there's a lot of people yes so if if you have got anything booked in London I would have a look at um, and in any other major city in the UK to be honest I would have a look at uh, just making sure that you're insured or what the cancellation policies are for that to be honest
0: but there's some people for whom these restrictions aren't going to wear well let's be honest here I think some people would see it as you say as authoritarian but let's be clear I think you know the government's quite within its rights if there's a risk of widespread public infection and illness and as I say sorry, it doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, you want to to try and prevent death as far as possible. Yeah. You know, these seem like sensible restrictions to handle. And and, and obviously the best thing you can do, if you do think you're ill, is to self-isolate for a while, make sure you're well-stocked and, you know, wash your hands. I mean, I don't know about you, where I work, we've got, you know, anti gel on the the side now. And it's just a sensible precaution. So, you know, I think there will inevitably, I think, be some people who might succumb to silly bugger syndrome. ...and might start waving their hands around about government authoritarianism... ...and this, that isn't, this isn't what's happening here as well... This, ...these are very unusual steps, you know... We, ...we haven't seen anything on this level
1: since SARS, really... Yeah. ...and most people don't remember that... ...of our age, probably younger... ...and I, I, I suppose that the key thing as well... ...is that the government's got to bear in mind... ...is that, you know... ...the people who are most susceptible to this... ...are, you know, people who are elderly... ...people who have underlying health conditions... And, you know, it's important that people who are, you know, younger, healthier, unlikely to get severe complications. There have been people who have died in their 20s and 30s, it should be pointed out. But, you know, it's very difficult to stop there being a lot of deaths, you know, if people are not taking measures to, at the very least, make sure that they are quarantined if they get it and that they... um are trying to prevent themselves getting it in the first place. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the government does, whether it is able to isolate it. Um, to, I mean, I, I almost certainly think it is going to be here, probably here for a number of years. Um, yeah, it's, it's a winter virus. Yeah, I, th- I think it will be recurring over the next few winters. So this will, you know, this will be a big test of the government to see how it handles it and how it can make people feel that it is in control of the situation. They tested the pledges they made during the election funding the NHS as well. I mean,
0: they're already legislating for the NHS funding bill to go through right now, which is keeping up, you know, as they say, is above inflationary cash increase too. But we have still seen, and we must remember that at the end of last year, we saw the worst A&E performance targets on record. And if it does spread,
1: particularly in the winter months, it's going to stretch the NHS further than it already has been already and I think the key thing would be on the, the monetary pledges if the figure does not go up and there's been a huge coronavirus um, crisis throughout the country and hospital beds have had to be redirected towards that that will lead to a postponement of things like minor operations things that people wouldn't definitely notice so the amount of money that they are putting towards it at the moment I, I, I struggle to see how they could not increase it and also be seen to be keeping the promise to the, made to the electorate. He only made three promises. You know, he can say that he's achieved one of them. Uh, if he catastrophically fails on the NHS funding pledge, I think he'll be uh, in a sort of vulnerable position, especially given uh, Labour's primacy and the trust stakes on the NHS uh, coming into, the, you know, with as well with their leadership election. Uh, voting is currently open, so... Uh, at some point in the you know early April, we will have a new leader. Yes, yeah, and so that does change the dynamic. I mean,
0: one last point before we move on as well. It has been reported that the budget's going to be the week after we record this, about nine days from when we record this. We know pretty much what's been briefed to the papers that major spending and uh, tax raising decisions have been uh, deferred until later in the year, partly because of concerns about coronavirus. And I think if anyone has any doubt about the seriousness of this scenario, we've got to remember that the Friday before we record this, the stock market had its worst week since the financial crisis. You know, it, it, the, the amount it fell by, I think, about 15 13%, 13, 15, 13 to 15%. It wiped billions off the, uh, off the global indexes. So Rishi Sunak has left himself room for manoeuvre here. So if the government doesn't do anything drastic in the budget, they clearly have left themselves more room later in the year. They have put themselves in a the fiscal straitjacket And they weren't counting on having to deal with something like this And I have a sneaky suspicion That the money they've put pledged for the NHS in law Is not going to be enough It's going to be a floor rather than a ceiling For what they can spend Okay So um, that's, that's what's been happening over here with coronavirus
1: what's, what's been happening
0: in the States With Donald
1: Trump Well uh, Donald has um, Given Mike Pence uh, Free Brain to lead on coronavirus which is uh, sort of a an, uh, controversial decision I think, to say the least um, given his um, somewhat shaky grasp of scientific detail uh, based on the, the rest of his career I won't go into further details but um, if you have a quick Google of Mike Pence's uh, opinions on a few n- number of subjects um, but I, I think actually, in, in many in many ways, the wider issue for Trump will be his competence in dealing with it. He has massively downplayed uh, the potential of there being a coronavirus crisis in the US, which is an extremely brave decision, I have to say. He said, he said
0: people were getting better, didn't he? He said people are getting better, yeah. and
1: he's he's <laughs> he's been saying that vaccine will be available in a few months. It will not be. Um, he's been. Saying that it's all been blown out of proportion, um, which it has, it has not. The WHO has specifically been trying to avoid the use of the word pandemic because you know they're they're hoping it can still be sort of you know isolated. But in the US, there are increasing signs that today's it is embedded in some communities, uh, in some cities in the US. It's been a huge increase in cases. They've got more than double the number of cases in the UK. Um, and, you know, there were, I think I think there's real concern that, uh, I mean, if you take it just on a personal point for the president, he has got to show that, A, he can competently deal with a crisis like this. It is not something that he can uh, control in the same way that the nuclear crisis in Korea was dealt with. It's very much about showing that he has grasp of details, that he's getting briefed, that he is directing resources to where it's needed, and also that any cuts that he has made um, to different health budgets don't actually um, damage the um, the nation's uh, ability to deal with that. And you know, I, I think as well, the big risk for him coming into an election period is that he's going to run on there being a strong economy. Hmm. If coronavirus becomes a, a longer-term issue, I can't see how he can run on a stronger economy if their economy is severely hit by coronavirus. And it, it does make the election a little bit more up for grabs than it was. So does
0: coronavirus cost Donald Trump re-electioning? Because we've been talking for a while now that while the US economy... Has been performing well, and it has been performing well until until now, and still is at this particular point. You know, it's generally a rule that, no matter how unpopular a president is, a strong economy does work in their favour. If that gets blown off course, and Trump isn't seen to be able to manage, it is probably his the biggest crisis he could potentially face as president. You know, apart from one of his own making, does that cost him re-election in November?
1: If he doesn't have another strategy,
0: yes. Okay. so I mean, It strikes me that it's also interesting because although there'll be state-level responses and you know, obviously private hospitals, it is going to be a federal government. The CDC are going to be responsible. The Centre for Disease Control are going to be responsible for coordinating you know, the public health aspect of this at a federal government level.
1: But when you put your own vice president in charge of the response, it does make it a little bit like your own personal... Uh, you know, you're putting your sort of right-hand man in charge of it. If it fails, if it becomes a widespread crisis in the US, he has kind of brought the blame for it on himself. So it'd be interesting to see what what I think happens from that regard. And, you know, there is pressure on him to do that. But, you know, we we, we will see. Hopefully, hopefully... There'll be no serious crisis on any level any level but it's a test of his ability to control domestic long-term crises and it would be a test of his ability to follow what experts are saying and to enact the policies needed to do it on a very very rapid basis to a, what could be an ever-changing position
0: so Donald Trump is probably increasingly nervous about uh, his chances of re-election as the economic climate changes, uh, if it does change because of coronavirus. Um, However, what he still doesn't know, what we still don't know, is who he'll be facing in the November election. Now, despite a 75% reduction in the number of Democratic candidates over the last year, there there are now five, we're down from 20, we still don't definitely know who it's going to be. We're doing this today before Super Tuesday, and perhaps... I think we'll be hoping for a bit more clarity after that um there were six after the uh, there were seven sorry after the uh south carolina primary of the weekend we lost pete Buttigieg, edge and um we also lost amy klobuchar as well so let's talk a little bit about those two uh i'm i feel a bit red-faced because i was i was kind of hoping that pete would go all the way I won't, I won't i won't lie he was my favorite remaining contender also the youngest man in the race on the Democratic side, as well, by quite a considerable margin. Uh, I think what you said, Liam, about Buttigieg in the last podcast about him lacking a certain clear sense of ideas. I think you're right. I think you got you know the, the sort of the, the sort of awkward tie at the start of Iowa and a sort of strong posting in New Hampshire weren't enough to carry him through in Nevada and South Carolina. And I think he's realizing that splitting the moderate vote, after finishing a distant fifth in um, South Carolina at the weekend isn't enough for him to carry on, but I hope we'll see more of him because he has had the most insurgent campaign of the last year and a remarkable, given his limited political experience as well, I mean, given he's running against senators and representatives in Congress and a former vice president. He made and he managed to come joint top in the in the Iowa caucus. Um, why don't you touch a bit on Amy Klobuchar though? Because um, I think for me, my money, she had the most memorable campaign launch. ...in a snowstorm in Minnesota just over a year ago...
1: ...but her road and his
0: road... Have ...both ended in just... Chive Super Tuesday.
1: I, I, think, I think it's very, very... ...telling in many ways... ...of how the... Um, ...how the race has actually... ...it has become certainly that... ...Bernie Sanders is going to be one of the top two candidates. Yes. And, you know, Klobuchar... Uh, ...I thought she did some... ...very impressive debate performances... The problem that she had is organisation and the financial reach to be able to actually take it to Sanders. And I think there's a feeling, you know, that, you know, she's a good candidate. This was, you know, she, she had the momentum far too late to be able to, I think, turn it into a victory for her in the long term. And I think she's decided, given the nature of the campaign, it isn't a case of two, you know, moderates running on a kind of relatively similar platforms, but about who is the best candidate to run. Uh, it is very much about Bernie Sanders, the you know, the left of the party, and whoever the moderate candidate is. Given Biden, you know, is second placed in terms of delegates. Given the fact that he had, you know, 49% um, in the, you know, very early on before he was declared for him, um, 49% of the vote in South Carolina. It's a very strong performance. Um, there was a sense that if all the moderate candidates stayed in going to Super Tuesday, Bernie Sanders would almost certainly be the candidate. Um, and I think. Uh, the two that have gone are the, you know, out of the, well, four, five uh, sort of centrist candidates. You know, I think it was important for the Democratic field to be between two sort of stellar candidates representing the different wings of the party, and to see how that develops. And you know, Super Tuesday, fourteen different states. Voting thirteen hundred delegates yes it's 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 a vital it's a vital day and you know i you know neither of those two candidates I think you know mayor Pete's momentum was on the down low I don't think it'd have been stronger going into places like Texas and california um amy klobuchar um you know, didn't quite have the reach she could have perhaps taken a state or two, but it would have been very much you know plucky upstart he's probably not the point in the campaign when you want to be a plucky upstart um, Biden has the organisation he has the funding um, he has now momentum going into the Super Tuesday states but you know for me it's it's still you know Sanders is the one to beat he's, he's got the funding he's got the campaign in place um, his big thing will be what does Elizabeth Warren do, I think?
0: I mean, I'm expecting Warren to drop out after Super Tuesday, if I'm honest. I think Biden undoubtedly has benefited firstly from the strong coalescing of the black vote in um, South Carolina around him, something that was, you know, unsurprising given that he has deep roots with the state and, you know, with the black community in that state particularly. But also... I think as well that he was able to make that count. I think mean, he needed this to stay in the race. Like The first three small primaries, the Nevada Caucus, New Hampshire, and Iowa, he has struggled to make himself heard. There's the sort of one on one meetings. You know, he, he hasn't really felt like he has the same energy he used to have. This is technically his third run to be president. Um, he is, you know, now mind bogglingly, you know, uh, the youngest Democrat in the race, and Donald Trump is the youngest man in the race as well. So, what we have to remember with Joe Biden, is that he benefits from both Klobuchar and Buttigieg dropping out, and I think Warren will look at, I think Super Tuesday will be the point which Elizabeth Warren recognises that Bernie Sanders is going to carry her wing of the party forward and that point, when Elizabeth Warren drops out, I think that's the point at which Sanders becomes unstoppable to become the Democratic nominee.
1: And, you know, it depends what happens as well. I mean, like a lot of the polling um, is suggesting that in actual fact um, you know, edge is um, candidates. Oh, no, no, no! I'm, I'm going yes. to get you here. I'm going to get you here.
0: Buttage because I looked. I looked this up because yes. you know you you were adamant it last time. It's boot edge edge. Yes. You know? but I like the way you say it more.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm going to stick with Mayor Pete. But I, <laughs> that Mayor Pete, you know. Mayor Pete's better. Yes, yeah, I think so. It's, it's 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 a great nickname to be honest. Although although I couldn't have seen it being an issue when it came around to the national election to be honest. Um, you know, being called Mayor Pete when you're running to be a president doesn't quite um, doesn't quite cut it. A bit too colloquial, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's a little bit like you would trust him to sort out the local councils. Uh, sort, you know, make sure that the library was working well. Whether you would trust him with you know taking on you know. Vladimir Putin, I think, would be a completely, you know, yeah. Mayor Pete versus, you know. If Vladimir Putin, yeah. yeah. I mean, it'd be an interesting, interesting matchup. I'm not particularly sure it would be a Deontay Wilder, <laughs> Tyson Fury type uh, type match, although the outcome might be the same. <laughs> Who's Tyson Fury in that analogy then? Who's Tyson Fury? Well, I, 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 I think given, uh, given his uh, victory in that, I think it'd probably be Vladimir. But. Um, <laughs> You know, it's sort all of like, but sort of going back and looking at the um, at the candidates. you know, I think
0: who, who are the five ready candidates? I should say who are who are the five main candidates.
1: Well, you know, we've got obviously Sanders, Sanders. obviously sort so, you know uh, Joe Biden. Um, you know, the big and known quantities. You know, uh, Mister Bloomberg. He's the
0: he's the wild card,
1: isn't he? Yeah, he's he's running for the first time in Super Tuesday States. Yes, he, he
0: actually hasn't been on the ballot until now. There were a few writings for him in Iowa and New Hampshire, but Michael Bloomberg is about to see whether those millions of dollars he has put into the race in advertising, and he has saturated mediums, you know, online, in radio, TV, whether that's actually going to pay off, but he hasn't... He seems to have, at least in the media coverage, fallen back a bit.
1: I think it was those debate performances... Um, you know, he was terrible, absolutely awful in his first debate. It was an improved performance, but it couldn't have been the worse one uh, in the second. And I I just kind of feel that there's a lot of baggage that he has. um, Various different reasons. Um, Is he actually the best candidate to be taking on Bernie Sanders if the centrist... Wing of the party actually wants to have the presidential nominee? Um, no, I think he'd be the perfect I, I, If Sanders had to pick a candidate to run against him in the top two, I think he would have picked Bloomberg. Yeah, I think um, you're right.
0: Bloom, Bloomberg does, you know, Bloomberg appeals to everything that Sanders, the wing of the party, hates. I think if, if Bloomberg ran as the candidate, won the nomination. I don't think Sanders supporters would turn out and vote for him like it would be another Hillary scenario. I could see them voting for Joe Biden, but I couldn't see them getting behind Michael Bloomberg in November.
1: Yeah, and you know, you look at the um sort of, you know the the other the other candidates as well, sort of, you know Warren, you know, is obviously um sort of far more leaning towards the Bernie Sanders wing of the party and you know Gabard, you know, he's still Still in there. Um the youngest candidate as well in the race. By by quite a margin, actually she's now <laughs> the only candidate that is not in their seventies. Yeah. And um That's mad. it is, it is. Um I'm, I'm not overly sure she uh why she's staying in to be honest. But um you know, she's she's been very different candidate to the others, but she's not gained traction. No. Um it's pretty much been a case of she's taken unpopular decisions but you know
0: her, her positions are
1: not going to win her the Democratic nomination and you know <laughs> she's, not,
0: she's on the right of the party or what' we're saying is she isn't you know she's not channeling the kind of ideas that are really enlivening the wings of the democratic party that Bernie Sanders is seeking to tap into
1: yeah I mean you know on on the right of the party I think she's right enough to be considered you know very close to the uh, the republicans in many ways um, the, the old the old fashioned republicans it should be said but um, you know you know she's 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 hanging on in there but um, I think in reality it's there's four candidates that have a key to who's going to be the next um you know, democratic nominee um she's not one of those four no she isn't and it's it's unfortunate that it won't be a woman i mean i
0: i i, I know it's not you know gender and age are no should not be determinants of a candidate it's down to ability and i think sanders has plenty of ability to give trump a run for his money but we have to reflect on, I think, the the fact that the Democratic nomination started with such a wide bill and has coalesced down to the predictable candidates. But all the talk that Joe Biden would have, you know, fallen you know fallen away by now. He has proven to be resilient. I do believe that Biden has passed his best in politics. Now I think he's a, he's a, he's probably a spent force, and I think a presidency under him would probably keep America you know jogging on the spot, even as his campaign slogans tend to sort of suggest this isn't a forward-looking candidate. Say for Sanders, he does have an alternative vision for the country, whether it's one a lot of people can get behind or not. You know, as you were saying to me before, the vision of you know America's voting for even a moderate socialist—a man you know for whom our you know would be sort of comfortably within you know you know the mainstream of the Labour Party over here, rather than uh, the extremes of uh, you know um, the left wing that we was that we would see in this country. The trouble for the Democrats, I think, remains that. They are still risking a bun fight. I mean, even after Super Tuesday, if seemingly one candidate can emerge with a relatively clean slate, you know, Sanders can pull ahead, and I think that's probably the best scenario for the Democrats. That Sanders does come out ahead. I think if Biden, the longer Biden tries to pull back, it's in the long run going to present more of a challenge for the party to come together. And the lesson from twenty sixteen was that you know the the, the 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 primary, the longer primary process, did damage the credibility of the Democrats going into the summer and presented Hillary Clinton with a lot less time to bring the party together at the same time she was fighting a rearguard action over the Russian emails. This year, with a potential public health scandal in the background, and of course, we mustn't forget questions over you know, impeachment. I think people have moved on from that remarkably quickly as well. Sanders is also going to be vulnerable to the traditional charge from Trump of being a socialist. And he can own it and try and make it seem appealing but I don't think that wins in the kind of states that he needs to actually take the presidency.
1: I think the key, you know, if if it is Sanders, I think the key thing will be um, whether he can hold the Hillary consensus together and whether he can get Trump in the Rust Belt states where he won last time. He's a candidate who was more popular than Clinton in the Rust Belt states, but, you know, the real test will be when, you know, some of the results start coming in, um looking to see which candidates perform well in those states, I think that they need to win an election. Um, it's, you know, all well and good being been able to sort of carry California, but California will vote Democrat in the next election. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, same with New York and, you know, states like that. The key thing, I think, will be who can make some headway in those states that are you know, either leaning Democrat but not fully Democrat or leaning Republican, I think most importantly. And um Can Bernie win Ohio? That's
0: I think that's the question is it can Bernie win Ohio?
1: I think he can. I think he can. The issue will be him having to run a clever campaign because almost immediately Trump will be talking up his socialist credentials as well. And there'll be a lot of the word socialist that will be banded around. Uh, He's got to be very, very careful to make himself seem like a moderate, um, sensible politician, Um, not to go into the debates and have a shouting match with Trump, which is exactly what he will want. Um, People will stick with what they know if they do not think the alternative is better. And he has got to make sure that if he is the candidate... Uh, that uh, which I think he most probably will be, um, he that he presents himself in a way in which he is seen as a sensible alternative.
0: One well, thing's for sure, it won't be a dull campaign. So we're predicting Super Tuesday. I think Bernie comes out with probably a healthier lead. I think Joe Biden will probably post a strong second. I think I think Bloomberg's heading for a um, Rudy Giuliani run here in 2000. No, you know, blazing a trail, but no um, delegates. Um, I think Warren, to my mind, Warren drops out after this and I think Gabbard hangs on a little bit longer because I think Gabbard will want to be the last woman in the race. But I think Warren drops out Super Tuesday.
1: I I broadly agree.
0: (laughs) We'll have to wait and see the next one if we're right or not. Right, okay, we're going to skip back across to the UK for the last six or seven minutes here. Um, Now, Alipias come around... Every, every four years or so. They're quite uncommon, quite rare occurrences. Um, this year's leap year brought with it something you don't see very often, so, and that was the resignation of a senior civil servant. So you may or may not have heard of Sir Philip Rutnam. He is somebody who has been a career civil servant for over three decades now. Um, I have seen him a lot in his context of his role as the permanent secretary for the Department for Transport, <laughs> during which time he saw oversaw HS2, among many other things, and indeed a controversial rail review as well. But since 2017, he's been the top official at the Home Office, during which time he's worked with three Home Secretaries, Amber Rudd, Sajid Javid, and now, of course, Priti Patel. After a couple of weeks of media reports circulating around, negative briefing in the press about the Home Secretary, and about a, uh, a broken relationship between her and her top official, um, Sir Philip emerged on Saturday and announced that he would be resigning from his post, citing claims of a briefing campaign and alleging uh, poor behaviour by the Home Secretary. He is suing the government for constructive dismissal, and Downing Street has responded by uh, doubling down in their support for Priti Patel, who I should say categorically denies any allegation of bullying, and all ministers do, and there is no public evidence to suggest that. There have only ever been claims made against her. So let's stick away from the claims about Pretty Patel and look what this broadly means for the relationship between the government and the civil service under this particular administration.
1: Well, it's, it's come very, very soon after um, Dominic Cummings um you know, reformed this civil service agenda. Um, they had the, uh, the Misfits advert um, from a number of weeks back before Christmas, I think. Um, you know it, it should be pointed out that one of the misfits was, was, was hired and we, were, we weren't going to him yeah. too much but um, he's he's no longer with the government uh, and you know it's it's very much a kind of a bit of a battle between the two at the moment um, so, it, you know it's you know I, I, as much as it gets brought up time and time again it's a brilliant TV show So yes, minister, yes, prime minister. That relationship between politician and civil servant—you know, the civil servants running rings around the government. Um, You know, Margaret Thatcher always said that it was quite an accurate depiction of the two. Um, It's interesting that this has happened now. I think it's very much, I think, a a shot across the. Bows in terms of, you know, other senior civil servants who may be at risk of, you know, similar things happening. Um, you know, there was reports in the newspapers that, you know, another two permanent secretaries were um, under some sort of, you know, on a sort of... I think hit list is probably the wrong word, but you you understand what I mean.
0: And these are the top officials at the Foreign Office and the Treasury, um, Simon McGold and Tom Scholar.
1: Yeah. And, you know... This is very much a a sort of situation where, um, you know, the civil service will be keen to uh, try and make sure that you know reforms are not pushed. But also, it does say sort of, you know, it does ask questions about. We had a major reshuffle. um, You know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer was forced out. Uh, You now have an inexperienced Chancellor of the Exchequer. And you have a home secretary and a foreign secretary who are both not highly rated. It has to be said. Um, it, you know, there was a lot of people were worrying that you know the C team had been brought out by Boris um, in order to sort of cement his own his own power. And you know, it comes back to things like the coronavirus. Is you need good competence. Um, civil servants and good, competent ministers um, who are able to sort of, you know, push back on things and to, you know, run responses. And you know, at the end of the day, it's his premiership that will suffer if that doesn't turn out to be the case. Quite right. I mean, if
0: the only person of ability in your in your cabinet is yourself, you have no one to blame but yourself. And the government's anti-establishment bent, I think, will probably in the long run create more problems than it solves. Um, we're going to leave it there for now. We will be back in a few weeks' time. Um, we'll probably be looking at the Labour leadership result in the next podcast and maybe back at the budget, depending on how significant it is. And Measuring up whether the new leader of the opposition, Keir Starman, will be able to take on Boris Johnson. Who knows, maybe we'll have a last-minute surge for Lisa Nandy and on in our very own sort of Super Tuesday moment. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Please check out The Groucho Attentancy, www.thegroucho.co.uk. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share, rate it. It's you know We want to try and build an audience for this as well. Uh, you can also, uh, if you're very, very interested, follow us both on Twitter. I am at Mike underscore Indian. Liam is at Liam underscore K. And until then, until I see you next time, thank you very much for listening. I've been Mike Indian. This has been a slightly horse-throated Liam K. And we'll see you next time.